The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Matthew. Good morning, everyone. It's a great delight to see you all here worshiping. Um, If you're able and willing, let's pray one more time as we look to the Word of God. Our gracious God and our glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of yourself. As we have skirted into this sanctuary, this physical space or virtual space of online worship, may your spirit work deeply within us connecting us above all with you, but also with one another in spirit and in truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Every Tuesday at around noon, I listen to this song by this 80s band, The Call. It's a song entitled, It Could Have Been Me. You should listen to it sometime, actually. Then you'll know what a rocking tune sounds like. In this song, It Could Have Been Me, the lyric goes, living on that street, out in the cold, nothing to eat, dream of a home, dream of a bride, a life alone. It could have been me. It could have been me. Living in that prison, locked in a cage, damning the walls, damned the division, Wondering why it had to be me, well, it could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been me. I listen, I listen to it every time I go and teach at the uh, Tennessee Women's Prison this semester, as I've done for the last 13 or so years. My favorite place to teach and learn is either at Riverbend or now for the first time at this women's prison. And these haunting lyrics catch up with me every time. Wondering why it had to be me, well, it could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been me. I sit there with these sisters of mine, different stories, different colors, different backgrounds, different hometowns, and yet the same Lord, for the most part, struggling with the same thing. You know what my sisters at Deborah Johnson Rehabilitation Center are struggling with more than anything else? You know what that is, because that's actually the same for you and for me. Uncertainty of future. Not knowing 
when you will get out or when your expiration date will catch up with you. It produces a great deal of anxiety whether you're behind bars or behind bars here in Nashville or Brentwood. In today's text, we encounter the 12 disciples of Jesus, all of them facing this uncertainty. Indeed, a chaos regarding what Jesus is saying and how their thus far glorious ministry of the kingdom of God, which they could only interpret in terms of political ascendancy and power, could possibly end. Now that they're in the heart of Israel's identity politically and religiously in Jerusalem, they are now thinking, okay, something big is going to happen. But all of a sudden, Jesus takes a left turn. Jesus starts talking about his departure, which sounded like he was talking about leaving and dying. How could you not be confused? How could you not be uncertain of what he's saying? To this confused group of early adopters of the message of the Messiah, Jesus tells yet another hard-to-understand story. That's where we find ourselves. Today's sermon will be uh, neither easy nor entertaining. Today's sermon won't be long, but may border on boring. But I will attempt to show how early Christians began to develop their own relational Trinitarian model of theology and discipleship pathway. Right there, I might have lost about 100 of you, right there. But please, please, stay with me, okay? Relational Trinitarian model of theology and discipleship. So what does that mean? More than anything else, what, the, what we learn from early Christianity is that their theology of the Trinity didn't come out of a, some kind of graduate seminar. It didn't come out of rabbinic seminary training classrooms. It came out of the early church's experience with this messianic figure named Jesus. And as they listened to and engaged with the story that Jesus tells, they learned that there is a father that they all intuitively knew, that God of Israel. But then this person is relating with this God of Israel in such an intimate way that he calls him my father, and I and the father are one, and so on and so forth. So their curiosity is beginning to peak. Their intellectual kind of capacities are beginning to expand. And today, he's going to introduce yet a third person or a third present that will actually begin to kind of you know, uh, get them really kind of expanding their horizons and asking that God question in a very refreshing way. So that's what I mean by relational Trinitarian theology, that they are beginning to think about the God of Israel, the Son named Jesus, and then another helper that will be sent in his stead. And that will be the pathway of their discipleship. What that meant for them to begin to proclaim the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus Christ is going to be entering through that relationship that they have with the Son and also through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to show you that in some ways the problem we face with the bodily absence of Jesus was a shared problem among 99.99% of Christians throughout the history of Christianity including many in the first century, as this message of Israel's Messiah is going to kind of, you know, go far and wide, and how that same figure is the hope for salvation for the entire Gentile world. Many new converts would be asking, well, where is he now? You're telling me that he's alive and kicking, but where exactly is Jesus? See, friends, 
you're probably asking the same question, though you know the answer. Where's Jesus right now? Bodily speaking, he's not here would be the answer that you would offer. And that's why this thing that we will do called the Eucharist of the Lord's Supper has such a signal significance because it really communicates to us in a saving and edifying way the real presence of Jesus Christ. But we know, don't we, that Jesus is not here bodily with us. Bodily absence is going to be something that we're going to talk about. In philosophy and life in general, there's a thing called absence and presence dialectic. Another, I might have lost another hundred of you, but stay with me once again. It sounds super abstract, but this is what I mean. Let's break it down right here for all of us. Let's say you miss somebody right now who's not bodily present with you. Could be someone that, that you love deeply and dearly. Could be, um, I lost my father in November 2022. I think of my father a lot more. For the first year, it was a blur. I didn't really think, get to think much about him. But more recently, I began thinking about, and his bodily absence matters to me. But more acutely, we might, Mickey and I have one child, and he's, he's going to college out in, uh, you know, out in the West Coast. And so 1,952 miles away, <laughs> The last time I checked, and his bodily absence from us means something that really is very acute. That's what I mean, the absence and presence dialectic. So somebody in your life, in their bodily absence, is more present to you compared to somebody who's sitting right next to you in their bodily presence, but their presence doesn't matter as much. You know what I mean? It's kind of, kind of not so kind, but... You get what I'm saying. Somebody who's bodily absent from you is far more present to you because of your yearning that you have for that person. And so the early Christians, indeed all Christians, including you and I, sitting there, standing here, if we are Christians worth our salt, then we have to have this yearning for the presence of Jesus. That's why this tastes so wonderful, even though it may be gluten-free or wine or some cheap wine or Welch's grape juice, whatever it is. This tastes so wonderful because this way, this is the gateway drug into the deeper communion with living Jesus. The bodily absence and the presence dialectic has been with the early Christian community ever since Jesus was ascended because they asked this question, where is he? And they couldn't say, here he is. You see what I mean? Okay, if you're nodding, then this is exactly what I'm going to leave you with. This, how the, how the early Christian community sought to solve this absence-presence dialectic. And they didn't have the solution. God provided the solution. The pro, this provision of the solution is going to be the thing that we'll actually unpack together. This deep yearning. So Buddhism does not wonder if Buddha, the founder, is alive or where he is. There is no bodily absence or presence problem as such in Buddhism. Islam does not wonder if the Prophet Muhammad is alive or where he is. There is no bodily absence or presence problem within Islam either. Judaism does not wonder if Moses, the founding father and great prophet, is alive or where he is. There is no bodily absence problem with Judaism either. Then why Christianity? Well, here's why. You ready for this? Because Christians, believe it or not, proclaim that Jesus is alive. Right? Believe it or not, because sometimes we find out, is that really true? Yes, Christians of all orthodox part, you know, they proclaim that Jesus is not dead. He is actually alive. That means that absence, presence, dialectic is much more intensified rather than assuaged. 
People will ask you, people who are coming to know Jesus for the first time, and their life will say, okay, you, um, you know, Liz, you, you know, Luke, you've been a Christian a long time. Tell me where's Jesus. And I want to ask you, where is Jesus right now? How would you answer that? This is, if you were to look at this kind of text together, I hope and pray that we get to move into the direction of helping solve that particular problem. See, Christianity has this unique kind of absence, presence, dialectical problem precisely because we proclaim that Jesus is alive. He's not present among us in a bodily form, but he's alive and around nonetheless. In other words, Christ is felt more acutely in his absence than so and so you fill in the blank is in their presence in their life. Just as Pink Floyd sang in their album, The Wall, Is There Anybody Out There? Christians are expecting Jesus to reply, yes, I am here. But the question for the Christians become, where is that here? In today's text, Jesus begins to answer that question. How did the early adopters of the message of Jesus articulate the solution to this conundrum? For the rest of our time, we'll look at these three points. One, the problem of bodily absence overshadowed in verse 12. Second, the promise of a new experience articulated in verses 13 and 14. Three, the presence of a better presence accomplished, verses 15 through 17. So the problem, promise, and present, all P words. Well then, let's hurry and get to point number one, shall we? The problem of bodily absence overshadowed. So let's think about where they are right now, these 12 disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself. Jesus just had washed the disciples' feet. He told them about the impending betrayal. And if you have read that text, you know, some time ago, maybe last week, maybe this week, I cannot get over the fact that Jesus said, okay, the one that I'm going to give the bread to, and, and like, he's the one who's going to do it. And nobody could tell, like, because Judas Iscariot was such a trusted member, he was a treasurer of the community, so they could not possibly fathom the fact that he would be the betrayer. All of this as they had their last over, last Passover meal with Jesus. Did you know that? This is the last Passover meal that they had with Jesus. Presumably, they have had two more before. So this is their third and the final, but that, this will be the final Passover meal with Jesus. They had no clue. No idea that there was going to be the last physical Passover Jesus would eat with anyone, let alone the 12 disciples. But that's how we fallible and frail creatures are. We don't know the future, and the uncertainty of our expiration date has caused a lot, a lot of anxiety in human history, me and you included. Our text, in today's, uh, our t our, our text for today ends this way in verse 12. If you have your Bibles, please turn to it, physical or uh, physical Bible or physical Bible on your phones. It says, I'm going to the Father. That statement, I'm going to the Father, is a language of departure. I'm going somewhere. I'm going to the Father. And I don't know if they understood it right away, but I think it began to dawn on them that Jesus was not messing around here. He's going to be bodily absent because I'm going to the Father. But that existential sadness caused by Jesus' bodily absence will be overshadowed because of the greater works that these disciples will be able to accomplish. Notice that in verse 12, he says, okay, you know what? Um, 
says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater works than these things because I'm going to the Father. And so basically, and if you look at, well, we talk about Greek a lot here. So if you actually look at the, 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 the sentence structure and the grammar, it actually, it's actually flipped around. Jesus is telling his disciples, because I'm going to the Father, you're going to be able to do these things. So what is going to be a problem, namely the bodily absence of Jesus is going to actually be overshadowed by some things that they're going to be able to do that will actually transcend what Jesus has been doing. Jesus is saying, you'll be doing amazing things of authoritative teaching and announcing the advent of the kingdom of God, healing and reconciling in the way that I have, but you can actually do more. And I don't know about you, but you, like, you might be in, in, in sort of a moment of credulity saying, no, it can't be. How can these disciples do more than Jesus? Well, are you ready for this? I think they did. And let me give you just two examples among others. Okay. One is a geographical scope of the ministry of the apostles. Did you know that Jesus never, Jesus had no international ministry? Right? Any evangelist or like apologist or preacher, you know, if they say, yeah, I've spoken in 14 different countries, Jesus probably said, I've spoken in 14 different towns, but not overseas ministry, right? Thomas, yay, that doubting Thomas, once convinced that the resurrection of Jesus really did occur, then took that message of Jesus, the resurrected one, all the way to India, right? The founding of the first Christian church there in Kerala. You see, Jesus, again, never left Judea, yet the followers of Jesus took the message from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to Cappadocia, to Illyricum, to Spain, and to the end of the world. So they did greater things than even what Jesus actually accomplished. As Jesus says, you will do greater things, things than I have. Secondly, numerical size of the ministry of the apostles. Jesus, how many do you think came under, you know, conversion? I mean, maybe at least 12, no, 11. 11 plus, right, 11 plus, maybe another... 5,000, 10,000, maybe. But when you look at the book of Acts, with some kind of you know, objective desires to learn about something there, we will quickly learn that the number of Christians, number of converts, number of Jewish and Gentile began to grow in such an exponential number that they, people are astounded. People are astounded to hear the multiple languages that were spoken at this moment of Pentecost, but much beyond as the gospel began to really marinate the soils of, you know, far-flung places and the numbers of people grew. So, uh, so many came to bow their knees uh, before the crucified Jewish carpenter. That's a lot more than what Jesus managed to accomplish without taking anything away from Jesus. So the problem of bodily absence over, was overshadowed by doing things in my name. And that's going to be a very important phrase to remember, in my name. Jesus tells them in verses 13 and 14, which we'll look at in a greater detail momentarily, that you will have your desires of your heart answered if you do so in my name. Every time they did ministry, they did so in the name of Jesus. You remember what Peter said, gold and silver have I none, but such as I do have, I give unto thee, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. So we read in Acts 3, 6 through 8. 
That becomes a basically repeated paradigm of early church's ministry. They did everything in the name of Jesus because they, and by saying in the name, by reciting that name, you can imagine the early apostles kind of thinking, yeah, Jesus, our Lord, the resurrected one, the ascended one, in whose name we do everything and who has given us another counselor, another helper, another advocate. Indeed, he himself is with us and near us in that absence, bodily absence. In the name that is above all names, more beautiful, more powerful, more sublime, even in his bodily absence, the problem is overshadowed. That leads me to my second point, the promise of new experience articulated in verses 13 and 14. These two verses are often taken out of context to build up a theology of health and wealth and of the prosperity gospel. And it goes something like this, just as Jesus said, I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. I've heard so many preachers say that just have faith in Jesus' name and ask for a bigger house, bigger salary, better car, better life, and why wouldn't Jesus give them to you? These are white preachers, black preachers, Asian preachers, Hispanic preachers, preachers in Africa, preachers in Asia, preachers in Central and Latin America. They're legion. They're all over the place because just have faith. And a lot of times, this becomes the proof text. Is that the case? I mean, yeah, at one level, it may make sense. Jesus loves you, and, and you, you love Jesus, and you say, oh, please, give me a bigger house and better salary. Why not? We're 100% sincere and undivided in our faith anyway. That's a legitimate question. And I don't want to denigrate followers of Jesus who believe that way necessarily, but I want to offer a, another perspective that I think is perhaps a closer reading of the text, perhaps a closer walk with Jesus might look like this. Here's one thing these well-intentioned and perhaps well-heeled preachers are missing out on. What Jesus is saying is that the way for the Father to be glorified in the Son is by having his followers desiring and getting what the Father and Son would like them for them also. Let me unpack it. Um, so I, my wife sings uh, to our dog, Jesus loves Baxter. You know that like, Jesus loves me, this I uh, you know, right? We, Jesus loves Baxter. Baxter is our dog and not, not our child, but, but a child, I guess, in some figural sense. And our dog is seven years old, and I wonder what he wonders about me. I think about the canine-human relationship between Baxter and Paul Lim, and I transpose that to the human-divine relationship. But anytime you do that, you know the analogy will break down very, very quickly, and I'll tell you when and how that breaks down. But here is, let's enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> On rare moments, Baxter's eyes and mine lock. You have dogs, you know what I'm talking about. Your eyes lock and you kind of, I'm peering him, diving into his eyeballs and like, okay, what are you thinking, my dog? And he's looking at me and I have no idea what he's wanting, but I can kind of guess. What is he wanting? Food, what else? Treats and maybe a rub and, you know, you know kind of love, right? So food, treats, and love. They're the thing. I mean, it looks very complicated. He has a deep eyes. looks very complex, but it reduces to three things. Food, treat, and love. And I always try to meet his needs, right? Because I love him. Love my dog more than I think he knows. And I transpose that 
to the relationship with me and our Lord, you and our Lord. But this is where it breaks down. Let me tell you about where it breaks down, and this gets even better. Whereas I have no idea really what my dog actually wants. You with me? I don't know what my dog wants. He looks at me and our eyes lock, and I'm like, uh, yeah, you want trees? And I often say, go get it. <laughs> he just scuttles somewhere and gets, grabs something. But see, I don't know what my dear, dearly beloved Baxter wants, but our dearly beloved Heavenly Father, you fill in the blank, knows or doesn't know? Knows. What do you think your Heavenly Father actually desires of you more than anything else? What do I desire of my dog Baxter more than anything else? I'll tell you what I desire. I desire that my dog and my, me, we have a perfectly aligned will. That he will want what I want, because in so doing, he be absolutely secure. Our dog is a seven-pound terror of a multi-poo. He can sneak underneath our, you know, fence, and he can run off as he has multiple times. This is surely before Christmas. We lost Baxter. My wife and I are going berserk, and we're blaming each other. You know the drill. And then I go outside, and I'm calling out Baxter, Baxter, Baxter. And then there is a large SUV, and I see in a, and the SUV had a light turned on, and guess who was sitting in the back? Baxter. <laughs> I mean, if you have multiples, you know what I'm talking about. They may be the most lovely dogs, but they may, some, they may be some of the dumbest dogs you'll ever find. My Baxter has zero sense of loyalty. <laughs> he was sitting on the lap of this who knows who, thinking that that's his master and lord. Change of allegiance just like that at the drop of a hat or at the appearance of a car. And the child asks, is this your dog? I said, yes. And then, and then he goes, uh, what did he do? He asked, this child was very smart. He says he just didn't want to give it to anybody. He says, what's your dog? I, mean, I forgot what he asked, but then he confirmed that I was indeed the owner. And then I got the dog, and then we came back inside. See, see, this is where we didn't align. There was a misalignment of the will. What my dog willed to do was get the heck out of our house. What I willed of my dog is for him to stay heaven inside, and he chose this infernal existence potentially rather than the celestial environment called 1301 Burton Valley Road. <laughs> and I wondered, you see, your heavenly Father, our glorious Lord and gracious God, knows you better than you could ever know yourself. He's closer to you than you can ever be to yourself. He knows you and loves you far better than we can ever love ourselves and know ourselves as we did so during our confession of sins. See, the love of God is omniscient love, all-knowing love. My love on Baxter is not all-knowing love. I don't know what he wants. It's a guesswork at best of days. God's love for you is never a guesswork on the best of days. Then, then, how do we interpret this text? You're saying, Paul, time's expiring. Tell me what I should know. Yes, this is what I'm going to tell you. See, Jesus says, ask anything in my name. And that means that, hey, and because it's followed by verse 15, it says, you know, if you love me, then obey my commands. That means my role in my life is not asking for a bigger salary or better house or bigger pension. Those things matter. Better vacation. I've heard some people went on this cruise or that tour. Yeah, that sounds wonderful, but then that's not, if I could will just one thing. As Soren Kierkegaard in his masterpiece, the book called The Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. You heard that? Purity of heart is to will and desire one thing. What is that one thing? If God were to come to you and says, hey, so-and-so, I'm going to give you one thing that you desire, what would that be? 
What would that be? Longer life? Cure of our problems? Better financial? And those things are really important. I'm not knocking them as you and I are, you know, in many ways as I teach the beloved saints in the class. Yes, I hear about things, experience these things, but above all, what is that the one thing? As Blaise Pascal said that, you know what, in the throes of death, what it does is it clears up our existential sinuses in such a, such a powerful way that we're forced to ask, what is that one thing that we can never live without? And I think for you and for me, the answer is love. Love of God. Experiencing that love of God. So power of new experience articulated. You're going to have this. And then that takes me to my third and the final point. The present of a better presence accomplished, verses 15 through 17. All right? In verses 15 through 17, he starts by saying, If you love me, keep my commands, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So the present of a better presence accomplished. Right after he began to speak of another helper or advocate or counselor, this Greek term that we may have heard of before, uh, parakletos, shows up only five times in the New Testament, four times in the Gospel of John, the fifth time in John's letter, uh, first, uh, first of John's letter, 1 John 2, 1. The word is used to speak of the Holy Spirit in these various ways, whether it is an advocate or helper or counselor, someone who's not you, someone who is sent by God, who's going to God's work, who's going to be providing something that you might feel like you're going to be missing out on because Jesus is going to be bodily absent. You with me? Jesus is saying, okay, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to give you someone who's going to come in my place, who's going to do something that you will not actually feel the lack that's what he's getting at. Because the disciples are like, oh, wait a minute, you're going to leave? And what are we going to do? I mean, whenever my wife says, I'm going to be gone for a few hours, I'm like, oh, what am I going to I mean, I often ask that existential question, what am I going to do? Well, the disciples are asking, what am I going to do here? So he says, this teaching of the Holy Spirit is both a key component to early Christian self-understanding as the beloved community and also helps, helps build out this theology of God that had existed within Judaism. It assures a great deal of continuity and themes of fulfillment, right? There is a sense of continuity between, you know, Israel and the church, patriarchs, as well as, you know, the, the, the apostles and so on. But if you've been reading the Gospel of John at all, you'd be blind not to see the uneasy and often acrimonious relationship Jesus had with these teachers of Israel. His rabbinic teaching was often regarded as strange or heterodox because he did not really have any scholarly credibility or traceability. By having the ubiquitous Holy Spirit as another helper or advocate or counselor, the early Christian community could be assured of their right belonging to and believing in the true God of Israel who has fulfilled his covenant promises through Jesus the Messiah. Even though he was going to be bodily absent, the Spirit will guide them into all truth. Notice the Trinitarian framing of the giving of the Spirit, right? You ready for this? The beloved disciples who seek to do the will of God by loving God. My will will be aligned so that I will what God wills. The purity of heart is to will one thing, remember? Then the Son will ask the Father. The Father will then give to the beloved children another present, another counselor, another one who will abide with them, who will never leave nor forsake them, the Spirit of truth. Yet, here's a disclaimer. Look with me in verse uh, 17. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. 
Ready? Right? I mean, this is the very, very contrastive statement. The world cannot know him, does not see him, but you know him because you also, in a way, see him. So how is that? Inside dwelling of the spirit in the believer. Let me wrap it up this way. So um, Public Enemy um, is one of my favorite hip-hop band of all times. And I talk about this song to most of my students. I don't know if I ever have here, but here it is. Uh, um, so they have a song called Don't Believe the Hype. And it's a, it's a big song. I love it. And this is what I, what I say. I tell students, listen, don't believe the hype. Go back to the primary source. Just like, you know, the Bereans in the book of Acts. They didn't just take the apostolic teaching at face value. They went back and checked the scriptures to see if that was indeed the case. Well, they're basically predating public enemy's song, don't believe the hype. Don't just believe the hype. Go check it out for yourself. I can just imagine Jesus telling his disciples the same. Don't believe the hype about what they say about the good life because they don't have the Holy Spirit within them. Don't believe the hype about what they say about good religions because they neither know me, the Lord of all, nor acknowledge the Holy Spirit. Don't believe the hype about, hype about what they say about what truly matters in life because they ain't the Lord of the universe like I have been and I am. So believe my hype. Follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit who will never leave you nor forsake you. He will abide in you both now and forevermore. He's the better presence and he's the gift and the giver of life. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that you are the same. You are the same who has commanded the, the words of love to Adam and Eve. The words of love became the occasion for them to walk away from you. By wrong eating, we were misaligned from your will and from your world. But right eating can put us back in the right place. This right eating that we're about to participate called the Lord's Supper, it is not just a memorial or remembering of Jesus. It is actual communing with the present Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit so that through the elements, not in but through the elements of bread and wine and grape juice, the power of the Spirit lifts us up to the heavenlies to see Jesus, the risen Christ, who is reigning over the church as the Lord and as the lover and as the friend and as the present beyond all presence. We thank you for that promise and reality. We thank you for the ministry of Christ Presbyterian Church, all the pastors, all the teachers, all the elders, all the deaconesses, all the deacons, all the, all the faithful ones who work behind the scenes. May you be more and more magnified in their life. May you be the desires of our hearts so that our hearts' desires will be aligned with yours so that we may say, I desire that one thing that is the love of God, God himself. In your name we pray, amen.